Through the years that I've been in ministry, some of my favorite messages and lessons that I've either preached or taught have been to men. It really is one of my favorite subjects in all of the Bible because I believe it is very, very important to God. He has set his sights and his heart on helping men know who he is, and he has made that a a central theme all through Scripture. This morning, as we come into this time, I wanted to do something that maybe I'd never done before. I wanted to study some things out for men that that was new to me as well, and and I wanted to be able to share it with you. And so that's what I've been doing the past couple of weeks, just looking at some different passages of Scripture that I knew existed and I had read at different times, but never let my mind and my heart really come to rest on the way I have these past two weeks. So I want to share some of those things with you today. Hopefully you brought a Bible with you. We're going to start right in the book of Psalms. The passage that I have read a number of times, you may have well, if you're a person who loves reading the Psalms, you've been over this, but maybe you haven't seen it quite this way. Psalm chapter 78. Book of Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible, easy to find, just hold it up and and stick your fingers right in the middle and you'll be somewhere near it. Psalm chapter 78, starting in verse 70. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep he brought him. To be the shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. Now here's a little bit of what's going on. That's obviously in reference to God choosing David to be the king over Israel. He took the place after Saul's reign was over. David was the second king of Israel. He was chosen in just a special way. The prophet of God went into Jesse's home. Jesse was the father of David. He looked at every one of Jesse's sons except for David. And finally he said, do you not have any other sons? And he said, well, I have one. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep, but he's the youngest. You don't need to see him. That's the paraphrase that I would give you of it. And Samuel said, yes, I do. And he had David brought in. David stood before the prophet of God and he said, that's the one. And he anointed him king. And then David went back out into the, the fields where he tended sheep. Later on, though, scripture would say, God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And listen to this. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. There are some translations of the Bible that would actually read that last verse this way. And David shepherded them with the integrity of his heart. And that's not hard to imagine if you have ever studied the life of David. In the Old Testament and the New Testament both, you will come across this teaching about King David. He was a man after God's own heart. So when the Bible says that he shepherded Israel out of the integrity of his heart, really what it's saying is he shepherded Israel out of the integrity of God's heart. He did it the way God would have him do it. He was brought out of the sheep pens. That's all that had been entrusted to him up to that point. And then God said, here's a new flock. I want you to take care of them. And he did it with integrity of heart. That is great teaching. I am positive that you have met people in your life that the same could be said about them. They have shepherded those that were entrusted to them out of the integrity of their hearts. Sometimes that could be applied to employers. They take care of the people that they have been entrusted to or have been entrusted to them out of the integrity of their hearts. And they're wonderful men and women to work for. More often than not, it can be said in the home. They shepherded those 
that they were in charge of, their flock, out of the integrity of their hearts. Now, you can look at that in a couple of different ways. If everything is working great, then this verse seems to apply. But it is true on the other side of the coin as well. If everything is broken within the home, this passage is still true. They are shepherding out of the integrity of their heart. They are leading people out of their hearts. And sometimes that means that dads, men, need to take a close look at their heart And it allows them then to take a close look at their motives, which allows them then to take a close look at their actions. And hopefully every one of us would be able to look back and say, I have shepherded the flock that has been entrusted to me, my family, out of the integrity of my heart. More than that, our hope and our prayer should be that we have shepherded those entrusted to us out of the integrity of God's heart. Now, let me show you what it looks like when that doesn't work. There's a number of people that we could hold up as examples, but I found one this past week that really fits the bill. His name is John Davis. He's dead now. He lived in the state of Kansas. I had never heard of John Davis before. I'm from Kansas. That's where my people are at. My wife is from Kansas. That's where her people are at. That's where our people are at. But we had no idea that John Davis existed. Yet he has built one of the most popular tourist attractions in the state of Kansas, according to the different articles that I read. I didn't even know that attraction existed. It is sitting right outside of a little town called Hiawatha that is in the north-central part of the state at the crux of two interstates. John's tourist attraction is right there. Before I show it to you, you've got to understand a little bit about John Davis, though. John was one of those crusty individuals all through life. He was born into a a poor farming family, never had two pennies to rub together. When he got older, he hired on with another farmer to take care of the business around his place, never had two pennies to rub together. Out of sheer determination and strong will, though, he began to make some money. And once he started making money, he amassed a great, great fortune, particularly for those days. He met a young lady that he fell in love with. Her name was Sarah. By all accounts, she was much more pleasant than John. Nobody liked John, and John didn't care about anybody else. It was all about he and Sarah. He rubbed people wrong every day of his life. His flock was very small, those that he had to shepherd. Nobody says that he ever had many people working for him on his farm, maybe one or two farmhands. They did not have any children, so the only flock under his care was his wife and his in-laws. He liked his wife a lot, couldn't care less about his in-laws. After 50 years of marriage, Sarah passed away. John was left with nothing but the wealth that he had amassed, and he had to figure out what to do with it. It started with a funeral service for his beloved wife. He talked to the funeral director. They set up a a great ceremony, and, and he laid out all of his plans. He wanted her buried in this beautiful spot, and he wanted a special headstone cut for her. It looks just like this. He wanted that placed over her grave, and then he wanted a spot next to it for himself. So Sarah's buried on your right. John is buried on your left. After the service was over and the headstone was placed, John then looked at it and said, man, this is beautiful. What a great testimony to my wife. What a great way of remembering her. And he decided to keep going until eventually this was the finished product. That's the new headstone, the memorial to Sarah. 
Inside those walls, there are all kinds of different things like this. That is a sculpture of John without his arm, by the way, on the left. He lost his arm in a, a farming accident, and this was one of the last sculptures made. He wanted that done of himself, and then he wanted the vacant chair next to him to symbolize the emptiness, the hollowness that he was feeling after his wife was gone. In the front of it, there's this love seat or the two chairs together, John sitting at one end, Sarah sitting at the next. There's wonderful little notes like this carved into granite, kindly keep off the memorial. There are, are carvings and statues of them through all stages of life, young and old, facing each other at different times. There are angels carved inside of this memorial. The last thing that he had installed was the wall that you saw going all the way around it. Ostensibly, he had that wall built out of granite and marble to keep everybody out. It hasn't worked. The roof over the center of it is purported to weigh 50 tons. The wall added a great deal of weight to it as well. That became the last seven or eight years of his life, his only project. A number of people would tell you that John would say that his goal was not just to memorialize his wife, though he loved her a great deal, but he also wanted to exhaust his fortune so that nobody else would have access to it. Spend every penny that he had right here. Sold the land that he had purchased through the years. Sold the house that he had built. It was all gone to do this. Now there are two rumors floating around that I cannot verify for you. I cannot tell you that it's true. Like I say, I grew up in the state of Kansas. So did my wife. Neither one of us have ever seen this. All of this comes out of some different articles that I have seen. But the first rumor would go like this. At John's death, there were very few people that attended the service. Understandably, he had rubbed everybody the wrong way. Nobody wanted to be there. The rumor says that there was only one pure mourner that attended the service. Anybody want to venture a guess who it might have been? The sculptor. His business dried up when John died. Here's the second rumor. The ground underneath that memorial is giving way, and it's sinking. It's being swallowed up into the ground underneath it. It's not going to last at all. It's been there less than a hundred years, and it is being swallowed up by the ground underneath it. What a shame that John invested his life that way. But he truly did shepherd his flock out of the integrity of his heart, and it is very visible right here. This is all that mattered to him, and it is built on sinking sand. Let me show you what the Bible says about that. We're going to go to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. That's exactly what John did. He built his house on the sand, and it will not last. There's a lot of people that have done that. John needed to hear words of wisdom from people like William Wallace, who would say things like this, Every man dies, but not every man lives. 
John's life was a testimony to that. Every man dies, but not every man lives. John Eldridge would say things like this about John Davis's life. He would say that John Davis had spent his life with a series of agreements that defined everything about him. Eldridge's teaching on agreements would say this, we all have agreements with the, the spiritual realm, the heavenly realm. Number of people have made agreements with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Those are agreements of grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope and a future. But there are a number of people, according to Eldridge's teaching, that have made agreements with the other side of the heavenly realm. They have made agreements with the devil, and those agreements define their lives. Those agreements would wrap up who they are. In John Davis's life, it would seem like he made agreements with anger and bitterness, so much so that they define not only his life, but his death and the flock that he was supposed to shepherd. They came out of the integrity of his heart. When we take a close look at our hearts, one of the things that we have to look for are the agreements that are there. What are the agreements that I'm living under? Are they with God or are they with Satan? And I have to figure those things out. Here's the interesting thing about those types of agreements. They can be broken. The ones that we have made with the devil can be broken. We don't have to continue to live that way. David is one of the perfect examples of that. Remember, Psalm chapter 78 said that he shepherded those in his flock out of the integrity of his heart. If you've ever studied David's life, you know that he was not perfect. He was a man after God's own heart, but he made a lot of mistakes. Some of those mistakes were made with agreements in his life that he later chose to break so that he could have his entire life defined as a man after God's own heart, even when he made mistakes. He was still a man after God's own heart. There's some wonderful teaching that David placed in the middle of the Psalms that shows what that looks like when we have the right agreements in our lives. Let me show it to you. We're going to go to Psalm 101, the 101st Psalm. In my Bible, I have written these words right above that Psalm, a Psalm for every man. Now, I wrote those words in there, and for some reason, unbeknownst to me, I then highlighted the entire psalm in pink. I don't know why. So the 101st psalm, there are only eight verses to it. Let me read all of them to you. I will sing of your love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will walk in my house with blameless heart. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate, they will not cling to me. Men of perverse heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor in secret, him I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him will I not endure. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He whose walk is blameless will minister to me. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Now, as I read that, I see at least 10 declarative statements from David. 10 things that he says he will emphatically do. There may be more. These are just the 10 that I see. I want to break them down for you. Just paraphrase them, if you will. We're going to put them up on the screen so you can see this. The first one is this. In Psalm 101, verse 1, David says, I will love God. That's a declarative statement. The second one, 
I will walk blamelessly through life. Third, I will guard what happens under my roof. Fourth, I will protect the secret things. Now let's stop there for just a second. This is a big deal, especially in David's life if you've ever studied it. David had a problem with the secret things. By the time he wrote the the 101st Psalm, he had made his way through that. There are a number of men that have problems with the secret things. Things that they believe nobody else ever sees. Things that they believe they can keep hidden from everybody around them. That's one of the first places we should all start when we are taking a look at our hearts. When we are looking at the integrity of who we are, look at what happens in secret. The things that you don't think anybody else sees. Now let me give you a secret to go with that. You may believe that you're the only one who knows it, but God knows it. And you cannot run from that. So David says, I will protect the secret things. Fifth thing, I will not keep the company of wrongdoers. I will be slow to judge others. I will choose carefully who I spend time with. I will look for good role models. I will protect my home. And the last one, I will protect God's home. Those are declarative statements from David, man after God's own heart, who shepherded the flock placed in front of him from the integrity of his heart. Those are great statements. Now, we've written those things down for you. If you'd like a copy of these, Brett Bronson and and somebody else will be passing these out. So if you guys would go ahead and grab them. Fellas, if you want a copy of those 10 things, just hold your hand up. They'll make sure that they get them to you. Here's a cool thing you can do with that. There is a place for two signatures at the bottom of that page. One of them is already filled in. It's been signed by King David. There's a place for you to sign it, and then I would encourage you to stick it in your Bible and from time to time pull it out and take a hard look at it. Ask yourself if you are living those declarative statements, the I will statements of Psalm 101. It's just a good tool. Hold your hands up if you'd like those guys to bring them to you. They'll be glad to. So you can see an example in John Davis's life of what happens when the heart isn't right. And you can see an example in King David's life of what happens when it is. Things are totally different in how we approach life. Well, today is Father's Day. And I want to take those two things and wrap the sermon up by looking at some things that dads really need to know. Because you have been entrusted with the job of shepherding your flock. So maybe you need some tools to help with that. Some of you might be thinking, my kids are grown and gone. I don't need to hear this. Everybody needs to hear it. You really do. Maybe you'll have a chance to teach it later on. If your kids are grown and you have grandkids growing up in your care, you need to hear this. You really do. I'm going to turn over this part of the sermon to an author named Stephen Farrar. He is a great writer for men, one of my favorites. He's written a number of books. In fact, if you were looking at a shelf in my office, you could fill an entire one of them up with Stephen Farrar books. I really do like what this guy has written. These are four things that he thinks every dad needs to know. This won't take very long, so don't get too discouraged. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. In fact, We will end with that verse of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, open up to that passage. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes this verse. Farrar would tell you that he believes it is the most pointed verse in all of the Bible for men and for fathers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. One more time. 
Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, here are the four things that Farrar says is taught by this verse. Number one, fathers need to raise their children in fairness. He bases that on this word exasperate. Paul says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Some translations of the Bible use the word embitter. Fathers, do not embitter your children. A lot of modern translations have tried to remove that word exasperate or even the word embitter and plug in the word discipline so that the verse would read like this. Fathers, do not discipline your children. Now, they would add to it just as a caveat. Fathers, do not exasperate too harshly your children. Well, that's caused a lot of people to say that they need to not discipline their kids at all. Instead, they just need to let the kids kind of pick their own way and do their own thing. And and there's all kinds of popular teachings that go with that. That, however, is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches fathers do not exasperate or embitter your children, which means this. It does not even imply that you're never supposed to anger your children. And there's some Bible teachers today that would say that. Fathers, do not exasperate or embitter means do not make your children angry. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is teaching something along these lines. Do not cause a root of bitterness in your children's life. Do not cause anger issues in their lives. It happens all the time. Farrar says the antidote to it is to raise your children in fairness. If you have multiple kids living in your home, then you're fair between the multiple children. If you only have one child in your home, then you are fair to that child. Sometimes fairness means that your kid is going to get angry with you. Sometimes in fairness, it means that your child's not going to like you. But the teaching of the Bible, when you couple it with the other teachings of the Bible about discipline, means that you are to raise them in such a way that it is fair. Just be careful that you don't embitter them or exasperate them or cause something to happen deep inside of them that they will spend the rest of their lives trying to unpack. That comes out in all kinds of different ways. If you exasperate a child or embitter a child and they pack bags that they're going to carry around with them for a long time, then you can expect that they will deal with anger issues later on. That is for men and women. I want to say something this morning that is tied to something that I preached on Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, I mentioned this, and a number of you talked to me about it afterwards. I said, fellas, if you are in a marriage where you are abusing your wives, where you are knocking them around, shoving them, pushing them, doing all kinds of different things, physically trying to control them, then you have taken the way of a coward. And I said this, stop it. And a lot of you caught that. And we talked about it afterwards. My wife caught that too. And she said this to me. Now you need to say the same thing to the women on Father's Day. And so I want to do that. Because you see, it's not just men that deal with anger issues. Not in our world today. There are a number of women that deal with anger issues in our world as well. And they do it the exact same way men do. By knocking around their husbands. By shoving them. Physically abusing them doing all kinds of different things that are completely and totally inappropriate. All you have to do is just talk to somebody from the sheriff's office and they'll tell you about the number of domestic violence calls that are coming their way because of embittered people, because of exasperated people that have never learned how to deal with anger in a healthy way, so they choose to take it out on those that they love and those that are close to them. Here's the problem for men, though. 
Men understand, particularly men of integrity, that if they are being beat on by a woman, that they could easily control the situation physically. Men of integrity understand that if they were to hit back, the whole problem would be taken care of. Or if they decide to physically restrain, they can do it. So they don't because they are men of integrity. That means that they just end up taking the beating. And they become, in essence, what I refer to as the silent victims of society. There's a number of reasons that men cannot ever step up and say, this is what's happening to me. Number one, it's embarrassment. Number two, they understand that it's not widely accepted that it's going on, and so they don't expect anybody to believe them. And number three, there's a long history, and if you're in law enforcement, don't take this wrong, there's a long history of law enforcement officers hearing the story and arresting the man. And they take him to jail because it doesn't make sense that he's the one that's in the abuse situation. But folks, you listen to me on this. There are a number of men that are putting up with that, that are living with it. More than you could possibly realize. They are the silent victims of our world. My wife is extremely tuned into this now because her brother, before he died, spent 20 years of his life like this. He spent 20 years being beat on by his wife. 20 years being oppressed by her. So Tina is highly tuned into this now. We were watching on Netflix. We don't have TV at our house, but we have Netflix. We were watching the show Everybody Loves Raymond. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You've seen the show Everybody Loves Raymond? Pretty funny show at times. We're watching that, and then all of a sudden, Tina said, look at how Deborah treats Raymond. There are all kinds of different times where she takes physical steps towards him, and he cowers in front of her. And she uses physical intimidation to make him do what she wants. And if you watch the show through that lens, you can see it. He is physically scared of his wife. There are a number of men that are living exactly like that. And folks, you may not know this, and I, I, don't, I can't say it for sure, but I'd about tell you that it has touched your family in some way. There are silent victims of men that are being abused by women in almost every family. So ladies, listen to me on this, same way that I address the men on Mother's Day. So here's some fair balance for you. If you are touching your husband or your children in anger and you are physically abusing them, stop it. There is something broken within you and you need to get it fixed. Stop it. Does that make sense? Okay, I got one amen over here and one over here. Anybody else want to join in? Amen. See what an issue it is? Sometimes we don't even want to acknowledge that it exists, but it does, and it's real. So enough of that. Let's move on. We're going to go back to what Stephen Farrar says. He says, first of all, you need to raise your children in fairness. Secondly, he says, fathers, raise your children in tenderness. That can be hard for a guy to hear. I'm supposed to be tender. Are you kidding? I'm a man. Men aren't supposed to be tender. Do you know what tenderness really is in, in fatherhood? Tenderness is listening to the heart of your children knowing what's going on in their lives and paying attention to it. Fathers, raise your children in tenderness by listening to them. If you don't want to exasperate your kids, then sit down and listen to them. Talk to them. And that'll lead you to the the third one. And this, again, comes directly from Stephen Farrar. Then raise your children in firmness. Now, that may seem a direct contrast to fairness, but firmness is not a direct contrast to fairness at all. What we hear is Paul saying this, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Training is the firmness. Here's how I describe that. Place boundaries around your children and then don't ever move them. 
You place boundaries of protection and safety around your kids so that they know exactly what you expect and then don't move them. What's happened in our society and in our culture, and it it happens all the time, is parents will say, 20 years ago, you would have never done this, but today it's a different world, so now I'm going to allow it. Well, if it was truth 20 years ago, it ought to be truth today. If it was truth 50 years ago, it ought to be truth today. Truth does not change. And boundaries protect that truth. So place boundaries around your kids so that they know where they're at and they know that they're immovable. Oftentimes those boundaries come from the training in the Bible. Put them in place so that your kids are safe. I have learned here in the past few months one of my favorite statements in fathering. I didn't even know I had it. And it it kind of blesses my heart. It'll sound goofy to you at first. Eli, our middle child, our youngest son, came home and told us about something one of his friends had done that was just completely off the wall and wrong. And he got in trouble by his parents. But then Eli said to his friends, if I had done that, my dad would have killed me. That's exactly what he said. His friend said, oh, no, he wouldn't. And Eli said, oh, yes, he would. So Eli's telling this this around the dinner table. Obviously, he does not mean that we would have killed him. What Eli means by that is this. If I had done that, my dad would have brought the thunder of God down on me. He is absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. So you want to know what one of my favorite statements in parenting is now? It's when my children would say, if I had done that, you would have killed me. That's right because they know where the boundary is, and it isn't moving. They know where the boundary is, and we're not willing to lift it. Set the boundary in place and do it with firmness. Now, that's loving firmness that comes out of the training of the Bible. Put it in place out of loving firmness, and dads, listen to me. You have to be the one to do this. Put it in place, and then don't compromise. Yesterday, Dear Abby had three articles written to her. I like reading Dear Abby at different times. It kind of gives me a sense of what's happening in culture and society. In all three of these articles, there were children ranging from 16 years old to 27 years old griping to Abby about the boundaries their parents had put in front of them. The 27-year-old was saying, I ought to be able to do whatever I want to do, but my mom says that if I do it, it will change our relationship, and that isn't right. I want to be able to do whatever I want to do. You know what Abby said in all three situations? Your parents are wrong. Do whatever you want to do. The parents put the boundaries in place for safety. And even the boundary that the 27-year-old was talking about was a boundary of safety. And Abby was saying, they're wrong. Do whatever you want to do. I'm thinking about writing Abby a little letter now and just saying, you know what, Abby, you're wrong and somebody needs to tell you. So I'm, I'm thinking about doing that after reading these th- three things yesterday. It's interesting to me how we move those so easily and so freely. So Stephen Farrar teaches, put boundaries of protection around your children and do not move them. Make sure they know them. The fourth thing, he says, raise them in the Lord because you've given them a compass. You have given them something that will direct them through life if you have raised them in the Lord. Even if they choose to leave that, they will be able to use that compass and know how to come back. So raise them in the Lord. Some of you are thinking, I didn't have godly parents. Some of you are thinking, I never had those influences in my life, and I don't know what to do about that. Well, Jerry St. Ange sent me an email this past week. She had no idea that it would fit with what we were talking about today. I don't even know that she was thinking about it in terms of Father's Day. She just forwarded it on to me. Here's the general gist of that. 
couple that had lived in Oklahoma for a number of years went on a vacation to Tennessee. They wanted to go and enjoy the, the Smoky Mountains, and they did. Towards the end of their vacation, they had gone to a cafe one morning for breakfast. It was in a beautiful setting. You could look out the windows and see the mountains and, and see the haze that, that makes the Smoky Mountains the Smoky Mountains. They were enjoying it, just the, the peace and the quiet of it and the ability to be there together. But when they went in and sat down, they noticed that there was this silver-haired man walking around the restaurant talking to everybody. And the husband actually said to his wife, well, I hope he doesn't come over here. That would disturb their, their solitude for this week. Well, he came over introduced himself to him, and, and he put his hand on the shoulder of the man, and he asked where they were from, and, and the man said, we're from Oklahoma. He said, well, what are you doing here? Well, just on a vacation. He continued the conversation by asking what he does for a living, and this man said, well, I'm a professor at a seminary. Silver-haired man said to him, oh, you teach preachers how to preach, do you? He said, yep, that's pretty much what I do, and he was hoping the conversation was over, but man still standing there with his hand on his shoulder said to him, I got a preacher story for you. That's not exactly what this fellow wanted to hear, but silver-haired man turned a chair around and took a seat. And he said, look out that window. You see that mountain right over there? And they both looked out and they saw the mountain. He said, there was a little boy born at the base of that mountain to an unwed mother. It's a tough situation. He said, in these parts, when a little boy goes walking around town, the first question people ask is, who's your daddy? And he said, that little boy grew up without knowing who his father was. So everywhere he went, people would say to him, boy, who's your daddy? He could never answer the question. He didn't like going to the grocery store, didn't like going to the gas station, didn't like going to the convenience store, didn't like going to school. He didn't like going anywhere because everybody always asked the same question, boy, who's your daddy? He didn't even like going to church for that reason. It didn't take long before everybody in the community knew that he hated it and they knew that he was avoiding everybody to avoid that question. So they got pretty sensitive about it, but still the little boy hid all the time. They got a new preacher at their church, and this little boy was thinking, oh no, here we go again. He was used to coming in late and leaving early so he wouldn't have to talk to anybody, and he came late on the first Sunday that that new preacher was there. But the preacher wrapped things up early. It's pretty unusual for a preacher. Wrapped things up early, and everybody had to walk out right past him, including that little boy, and he didn't want to. As he walked past the preacher, the preacher put his hand on the little boy's shoulder, and he said, boy, who's your daddy? Everybody just kind of got quiet. They thought, we're going to finally get the answer to that question. He's got to tell the preacher. The little boy didn't know, though, so he said nothing. And the preacher, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saw what was going on. And he said, oh, forget that question. I can see the resemblance already. You are a child of the king. And he said, son, you have a great inheritance. Go claim it. And that little boy left the church that way. He was a child of the king, and he had a great inheritance. It was time to go claim it. The story says that when that man got up from the table after telling the preacher that, and the preacher and his wife were just listening and kind of awestruck by it, this man, silver-haired man, looked back at him and said, Boy, you know, if the preacher hadn't said that, that boy would have never amounted to anything. He actually looked at him and said, If that preacher hadn't said that, I would have never amounted to anything. Afterwards, the professor got up and went over to one of the waitresses and asked if they knew who that man was. And they said, oh, you know we do. He's, he's very famous around these parts. That's the governor of Tennessee. And he walked out of the restaurant. Know this. You are a child of the king. On Father's Day, he is your father. You have a great inheritance. Go and claim it. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father in heaven, it's been a good morning. It really has. Thank you for that.
It's a good day when we get to look at the influence that godly men have had in our lives. I can think not just of my dad, but I can think of the other men that invested in me when I was young, and I, I thank you for them. They were spiritual fathers to me. I look at the same thing for my sons. They are a wonderful blessing, wonderful gift to me. And along with my dad, they would, they would be the pillars of my life. But I know that there are other godly men that have invested in them, and I am very grateful for that. Most of all, though, I am grateful for your investment, for calling us your children, making us heirs to an inheritance that never perishes, spoils, or fades. Would you help us go and claim it? In Jesus' name, amen.